Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to show 361. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show we have today, I'll tell you what's coming in. First up, we have an interview with the the new assistant editor of Starship Sofa, Jeremy Zal. There you go, yes, a little introduction to Jeremy. Then we have the main fiction, which is, which is The Mouse Ran Down by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Then we have, well actually the show is made up of all little stories. Then we have another story by Adrian called 21st Century Girl. Then we have a fact article by Mark Ziggory, Mr. Sci-Fi Man. And this is, and I've actually listened just to 20 minutes of it, 10 minutes of it, I should I say. And it is just, fab. Mark is a great storyteller. And he's just telling the story about Rod Sterling and Rhea Bradbury. And this is just where you just like get lost in this story. It's just, Mark, this is fantastic. Then we have another short fiction, The, Dre- the Drained World by Ian Watson. That is all coming up in the day show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. It is that time where we have now officially really said, you know, goodbye to Adam. Adam, our assistant editor, who kind of stepped up to the mark a couple of years ago and kind of took over the kind of the kind of logistics and the running and the getting the stories. Adam, a couple of about a couple of months ago, said, you know, it's just it's getting too much. You know, his family life and job and career and everything like that, and he's going to have to step down. And I was gutted to be quite honest. You know what I mean? You know, it just worked together great, you know, I <laughs> just I'd let Adam get on and, you know, saw things out and he just did a fantastic job. And I just want to say, you know, a good luck to Adam in all his adventures and hopefully he'll stick around, you know, and send the odd program, odd program, odd story our way now and again. But since Adam kind of, you know, took over in that, I certainly now need a, a kind of an assistant editor to kind of help us out there and just, you know, get the stories and get it all sorted out. So... Adam has stepped aside, and I put out the shout like a, a couple of weeks ago. Actually, it's probably now a couple of months ago. And young young gentleman by the name of Jeremy Zal stepped up, and Jeremy got you on the line to say hello and welcome you to Starship Sofa. Yeah, hello, universe. Yes. How are you doing? <laughs> Jeremy's got the the job now. Jeremy, you, 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 I guess now you know how I like to work. I like to just roll up with the mic, press record, and then I, I'm aware. Everything's got to be done. Now, I had Adam trained to a, a fine art and that, so you've got to step up to the mark and take on that challenge. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, not, yeah, it's not easy like this, but honestly, it's, 
It's really fun, like as in um, reading, when I was just reading authors as a kid, and now I'm just contacting them saying, hey, I'm a massive fan of your work, I'd like to grab a short, grab a short story of yours and uh, serve as an editor for, or audio editor, it's, yeah, it's just fantastic, really. Well, uh, before we get into Jeremy, I just want to like, say a massive thank you to Adam, because Adam came in when it was kind of, for me, things were getting a little bit out of hand, I was kind of doing all of it, you know, for a couple mm, of years. Yeah, uh, when did he come along? Oh, I forget now, I think Adam's been on board for about two years, but really, just a, oh. mass, a massive thank you to Adam, kind of all the work, like you say, each week, Jeremy, Adam would have it everything kind of listed there and done and basically yeah. i just had to walk up to the mic it was like that you know it was all done for us so adam thank you yeah, that's so like, much that's hundreds of stories yeah that's at least hundreds of stories that's yeah and <laughs> contacting and getting permission and everything so yeah that's quite a feed so jeremy tell us a little bit about yourself and just so our listeners you know everyone out there can can get a know you, you are like i say a bit of a young chap am i right yes i'm uh ni- i'm 19 actually yes Oh, hey, just just a bobby, just a Ben. <laughs> yeah, like them young. Um, <laughs> yes, cheap labor. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I've just, uh, people have just told me, because I do writing as well, and yeah, people have just asked me, why do you start so young? I'm just like, what, but better time to start. Greg Bear sold his first short story when he was 15 years old. I sold mine when I was 18. Just beat me by three years, but you've got to start somewhere. So is, are you totally science fiction? Are you open to anything? Jeremy, sorry. Are you totally into science fiction, or do you kind of do, do you read oh, anything? Yeah, yeah, really, like I, uh, my mum brought me, uh, got me into books because I wouldn't sit still as a kid. And um, when uh, placed when we weren't from home and PlayStation wasn't available, she just yeah, push Enid Blyton in my hand. She'd push uh, uh, Charles, no, not Charles Dickens. That's too old. Uh, just like all those middle grade sort of books, just like The Hobbit and all those other things. And eventually, I started working my way up. Um, just reading more advanced stuff, and eventually got onto uh, Isaac Asimov, Greg Bear, and other various science fiction and fantasy authors. And I just, yeah, my mum just worked my way through it. And reg and a uh, book trip and a trip to the bookstore was a regular thing. And I started lean because I was reading a lot of really gritty crime novels for a time. And so then I just switched over to science fiction, and it's fantastic. Yeah. So what made you then, the big question, what, what made you put your hand up to come over as an assistant editor for Starship Sofa? Well, um, because, partially because like, I've been trying to uh, work in the industry for a while. Like, um, I've submitted quite a few uh, requests to like, other magazines, just cross-genre magazines, uh, Strange Horizons and the like, to um, get the position of a slush reader. And none of, the, yeah, none of them bit. And I was just looking for something. I just actually, I think I saw your post on... One of, I think it was Neil Asher who actually liked your post about wanting a new assistant editor. And I saw that and I'm just like, oh, okay, I'll just grab on and s- grab it. And so I just went straight to the website, write out an email, bang, and um, you responded. So that's how I got it. There you go. Slightly struck. So have you got any plans? Because I, honestly, I, Jeremy, I'm quite keen on just, let, you know, let you in, in a way run yourself. You know what I mean? Like, long as the kind of the stories are there and, you know, it's science fiction or it's got a bit of a science fiction twist. Yeah. I'm more than happy for you to kind of to choose the stories, you know, and kind of put your little spin on mm. it as well. So have you got any ideas? Ideas? Yeah. You mean as in uh, the type of stories that's released? Yes. Or, uh, yeah, I'd like to, I, like, I want to do a variety because like um, what I see a lot of the time, this is not a um, criticism in any form, but a lot of science fiction stories are being now leaning towards more towards a magical realism sort of side. 
And uh, like, especially with flash fiction, like stuff that's under a thousand words, primarily it's just easier to just set it in a very basic situation on earth with just a mild speculative, um, uh, little slip in there. And I, and I'd really, really love to get, go back into the other stories that are just grand and just have no, have absolutely no limits. I think it was, um, there was a story I recently read in Isomovs. It was Derek Kungson. I was getting him on the show. And his story essentially was about basically like aliens mining on like a distant planet and almost like slave labor. And it was like, and essentially they use like different minerals and rocks to, uh, to, uh, to eat and like a build out of rocks depending on where they live. And it was just so crazy. It was just so uh, completely and utterly alien, quite literally. And so I just, I just had to accept it. And I'd really love to get the, uh, more of those stories as well as getting, um, new authors as well because as as someone who like i've been i've worked my way up from the ground up like i've had i don't have a book out i don't have anything so i've just been able to do short stories and and so i know what it's like to get your work accepted by a really big uh, publisher like uh, a magazine and just someone to say hey yeah we like your work we'd like to take you on so Going through uh, reading like treasure troves of stories, there's just some really hidden pockets of gems out there, and it's just my I'd love I love to get them on the show, just spread the word, spread the love out, just get them a bit of attention, and having the pleasure of uh, being on the on the sofa. What's it like then, Jeremy? Just you know, as a day to day thing, just I'm um, just for you know people that can listen to. What's it like for you as your workload with Starship Sofa like just doubled, tripled, or have you getting into some sort of swing where? You know, because I, I'm guessing when you first hit the ground running, you were kind of sending out, banging out emails, left, right, and yeah. center, reading, reading, reading. Mm, yeah. And yeah, like it was a lot. Like it was a lot to take in because it's not just like if you're reading slush, uh, you're just like going through the pile and say, this story's, this story's horrendous, uh, delete. This story's terrible, delete. This story has too much sex, delete. This story doesn't have enough sex, delete. Yeah, it would have been, yeah, that's pretty darn easy but um with this is essentially just finding the author getting their permission uh filling out the form getting their bio uh, putting it in a file getting the audio narrator and as you know getting hearing back from narrators is quite difficult i've actually yeah got to thank you again for what you did but um sending out all those files to narrators but yeah and it can be quite a difficulty especially when authors don't want you to take the work like i'd already contact a few authors and they're like Oh no, you're not paying me, so I can't. I can't allow you to take my work. I'm just like we just wanted to put it into audio, but yeah, like it. It was a bit of a, tr- a struggle to get it ball rolling at first, but now it's just yeah, just uh, contact an author, just sl- slot them in a week, just get that aligned, and yeah, it just goes. It's going really smoothly as long as you keep it in advance, of course. I think you know with kind of what I've kind of come across with authors that kind of kind of refuse or they want money or something. You've just got to kind of respect their rights. You know what I mean? They've wrote that. Yeah, story, yeah, of course, you of know, course. Yeah, just... yeah, like these guys, they write for a living, and some of them barely have the time to um, respond personally. Some of them just ha- just have to um, do go through assistance. I I forgot his. I can't pronounce his name. And um, yeah, I contacted him through Facebook. And normally, I'm supposed to go through assist his assistant, and he wasn't very happy that i didn't and i just went through him personally but even then he told because he doesn't have the time to respond and he told me that he didn't want me to take his take his work which is yeah fair enough it's yeah people just have different uh, takes on it and i'm more and it's their fiction they can do whatever they like with it but um those who are do allow us to have their work on the show i'm eternally grateful to them 
So what what can we see then, Jeremy, in the future from you, sir? Have you got anything? You mentioned a writer there you, you, you spotted in Asimov's. Have we got anything? What can we look forward to from you? Uh, quite a bit, actually. I've actually got two stories from Megan Lindholm, otherwise known as Robin Hobb. She also does science fiction. And one of these stories was in an anthology edit, edited by Gardner Dozois and George R. R. Martin, which is pretty big. I think we've got another story from Peter Watts. We've got a story from Norman Spinrad. We've got, um, so just quickly, yeah, go through Dropbox because I think we've got quite a few big ones. Um, yeah, I've got, quite, I've got a lot of um, flash fiction from various authors, which is really cool just to slot them in there. I've got some stories from um, authors who have had a book recently published or have, um, like by a major publisher or had, um, or have been, yeah, just kind of, who will have a book published. It's kind of new, great to just get them up and running in the big, in the big business sort of thing. Yeah. I think we've got one from Ian Watson or Ian Waits. I'm not sure which one it is. And apparently he worked with Stanley Kubrick on artificial intelligence, the film. Which, we've got, we're going to, we're going to actually play the Ian Watson story today. And after oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. playing it today. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible working with oh, uh, Kubrick, man, that's incredible. I'm sure I've yeah. seen a, a documentary where he, he talks about it, you know what I mean? Because that was a kind of big highlight. I'm sure there's somewhere out there on the internet, you know, there's... Yeah, I'll there's find a it because there's almost, like, Kubrick was, yeah, a really mysterious guy and so much of his stuff is shrouded in mystery. But yeah, otherwise, I think we've got one from Alan Steele. Uh, we've got one from Angela Slater, which she's essentially Australia's most successful um, short, story, uh, short story writer. Got one from Brent Knowles, who won Riders of the Future contest. We've got... Um, yeah, we've got quite Neil Asher. We've got on here. We've got Tobias S. Buckle. Yeah, we've got quite a few stories coming in, and um, it's really awesome to be working with these authors. And I've been reading some of these guys for I think since I was like twelve years old, possibly even younger. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's fantastic to just say, "Hey, I've been a fan for half my life. Do you mind if I just can I please be your editor now?" <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just like sounds full of it, but yeah, it, it is really. Great. And I'm constantly on the lookout for um, more short stories, regardless in which form they appear. So, um, yeah, so if anyone is out there does have a published short story, I'd very much like to hear about it. I just try, I just want, yeah, whatever you've got, just send it my way. Well, that's that's a good point there, John, because it published short stories, because I don't want to kind of, we don't want to kind of yeah. just any kind of tag yeah. slash, you know, send mm. in. If because it's been published. I've, yeah, because now that I've, um, been like been doing this i get i think at least 20 10 extra twitter followers a day and i've had quite a few of them like message me saying hey please look at my short story to put up on the website and it's just like yeah it's not published it's not spec it's barely speculative it's barely grammatically correct and it's just full of just like really really weird stuff like it's stuff that would make like a clockwork orange look like Teletubbies, that sort of stuff. Yeah. I'm not even, not even joking. I'm just like, yeah, it's, are you for real? And I'm just like, yeah, no thanks. And then they unfollow me afterwards, but um, yeah. So yeah, publish short stories. And I'm probably going to sound like a douche for saying this, but I semi pro or higher would be preferable because um, yeah, we can at least have a, uh, almost guaranteed established uh, quality and it's great to get those other websites known as well so yeah 
semi-pro highest is uh, pre- preferable. Well, well done, Jeremy. There, I like to see you standing out there because we we set standards. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, I've got, I've got my standards. All right, I was um doing for the love uh, publications at first, but now I'm just like, nope, semi-pro or higher, baby. It's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, to maintain standards, look down on the d- dirty peasants. Well, listen as well, I want to also put a shout out as well, because I know Jeremy probably struggles with this as well. Narrators out there, any narrators you want to have a go, get in touch mm-hmm. with Jeremy. I'll put a link on and we'll, we'll get, I'll pass them over to Jeremy. Because narrators yeah. are the hardest ones to kind of, you know, we've got oh, to yeah, really kind of mollycolly them and look after them. So send over any information if you want to narrate and Jeremy will check you out as well. Yeah, yeah, please do, because like it's ridiculously hard to get narrators, and um, a lot of them are unreliable. Like, honestly, this, I've got stories that I sent out when um, you first, yeah, when we when I first took on this job, I sent out some narr- some narrations, and um, people still haven't responded. I'm just like, okay, okay, I've seen them on websites active, and on Twitter active, and they haven't responded yet. And, yeah, I'm just, yeah, so... It, if you are, please, if you are a narrator, just please do get in contact with me. That actually guy that um, you, I think you emailed me a few weeks ago, his name was Mark. And yeah, he said he wanted to do narration. He's, yeah, he's people like that. If any more out there, please do come forward. And thank you too, Mark, if you're listening for um, offering his, offering your services up like that free of charge. You know, the funny thing is, Jeremy, as well, is when we kind of, the transition between, you know, saying bye to Adam and bringing you on board, you know, there was the kind of little lull where stories weren't coming in and we were getting you up to speed with narrators and everything like that. And we, it was, we were scraping the barrel sometimes, you know, for the amount of stories and narrators. And you even, <laughs> this is the cool thing as well, you even dragged in your mum to help you with the narrations. And your mum is a fantastic narrator. Thanks. I've got, uh, I've got, uh, I've got no one. I just drag in whoever, whoever can help me. But yeah, thanks. She's um, been, yeah, she's actually, yeah, been doing talk shows and um, the like radio advertising for a while now. And yeah, she's also a writer and she's been like getting a few short stories out there. And so, yeah. And when I told her about this, she was like really ecstatic to be able to do it. So yeah, I'm just really great, grateful that you've offered her the opportunity. Oh, it's it's lovely. And like I say, it'll be kind of it'll be really special when we get your mum on and she does a narration there because I've listened to her and just sweet as a nose. And I don't want to sound like I'm chatting up your mum. You know what I mean? It's like she is yeah. perfect. Oh, Jeremy, she oh, is thanks. lovely. That means a lot to her. Yeah. I get her on the uh, microphone now, but she's out an anniversary with my father, so um, getting having too much wine, probably. So yeah, yeah. never but, mind. Yeah, never mind your dad. It's your mum I'm interested in. <laughs> oh dear, that's but, the level. Um, we've found our level now. <laughs> yeah, definitely, we've got it now. But, um, but yeah, thanks very much. It's re- it's really great that you're that uh, you've responded so enthusiastically because yeah, there's. There's a lot of narrators out there, some good, some bad, but yeah, like you, the fact that you've um, really responded so enthusiastically to her was is quite fantastic. And I'm just glad that you're not just yeah feeding uh, feeding me bull as well, because like you could just say, oh yeah, she's all right, just like not wanting to offend me. But I'm yeah, oh, really no, glad you can, you, I mean, you Jeremy, you, you you know it now. You can spot a good narrator, you know, just oh, as, oh, within yeah. within like ten seconds, less Easily. than that. You know what I mean? You kind of know straight away. And mm. I'm 
you know, number one there is a bad narrator. Even when I'm reading out bios, you know what I mean? It's like cool and bad, you know what I mean? It's just yeah, it's hideous. If, yeah, it relies on the audio quality a lot too. And um, we got that microphone that you linked us with. The um, We got that one. And right. so we just, yeah, my mom, we, my mom just, yeah, she came up to me one night and said, yeah, let's just start recording one of the stories. I'm like, yeah, okay, let's do it. So, yeah, I'm going to definitely get her to do quite a few stories. I'm just looking for ones especially that she could do or ones that would be preferable because, yeah, there are some stories, for example, ones that have like a male hardened criminal narrator and um, military get-up. It's not exactly her kind of thing. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. again, like you do need to f- pair the right story with the right narrator because um, there was this one story I got. I sent it to a male narrator and he got back to me. I, didn't, I forgot to read the story. He got back to me and he said, Jeremy, I don't mean to tell you your business, but this story is about a female narrator in first person have a period in space. <laughs> and yeah, so I was like, and then I read it. I'm like, yep, period in space, first person, female narrator. Not the right choice. So yeah. Oh, it helps. You, yes, yes. Yeah, you do need to be able to match the narrator with the um, story. Some are a good foot, especially ones with lots of dialogue. Well, Jeremy, listen, it is lovely, you know, your enthusiasm and everything coming on board and giving, you know, giving this little show a little lift there. And like I say, again, a big thank you to Adam, who kind of is bowed out, just, you know, family commitments and everything like that. He's, you know, he's a busy lad there now and we wish him all the well. And he's, he'll be still hanging around, you know what I mean? He said he'll, if he ever spots a fantastic story, he'll give her a heads up and that. So, well, Jeremy, it's been lovely to talk to you, sir. Keep, you know, keep, I'm going to keep driving you there harder and harder all the time. But thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great pleasure no, no, to no, talk no to you. No, no, no worries. It's fantastic anytime, yeah. <laughs> So again, I just want to wish Adam a big, you know, good luck, sir, in the future. And Jeremy, welcome aboard. So, main fiction. And the first one is The Mouse Ran Down by Adrian Tchaikovsky. I'll give you a little heads up about Adrian. Adrian Tchaikovsky is the author of the acclaimed Shadows of the Apt fantasy series. From the first volume, Empire in Black and Gold in 2008, to the final book, Seal of the Worm in 2014, with a new series and a standalone science fiction novel, Schedule 4, Schedule 4, 2015. He has been nominated for the David Gemmell Legend Award and the British Fantasy Society Award. In civilian life, he is a lawyer, gamer and amateur entomologist. This story is narrated by Al Bartley. Al Bartley trained at Guildhall. He has worked extensively on stage recently for the Fitzrover Radio Hour and The Factory. He is currently touring America with Much to Do About Nothing and has played many of Shakespeare's leading roles. On film, he has worked on feature roles as for directors as diverse as Luke Besson and Stephen Fry. In terms of voice work, he is most proud of being the voice of Stanley the Snail in the award-winning Garden Party range by Mamas and Papas. How I love sliding along and seeing new places. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... The Mouse Ran Down, by Adrian Tchaikovsky. Will Kemp was just starting his comic turn when Ellie pushed her way through the crowd to prod me in the shoulder. It's time, she hissed. We've got to go. I missed Kemp's standard opener, the joke about lawyers, and the whooping roar of the groundlings around us obliterated Ellie's next words. Give me five minutes, come on, I slipped into the next lull. I never get to hear this, I'm all packed. Ellie prodded me again. Move, John! 
She was got up as an apprentice, a young lad with the first growth of moustache feathering his lip and out on the prowl in his master's cast-off doublet. A man's clothes made it easier to move about London in the year of our Lord 1598. Small wonder Shakespeare had cross-dressing on the brain. They've got the complete works back at Permian 1, Ellie's finger jabbed even harder. Besides, you could have got to see it yesterday. It's Will Camp. He does a different skit each night. No one wrote it down, but I was letting myself be dragged off as Ellie drove a path through the crowd, leading with her elbows. I never did get to hear that routine of Kemp's. You could keep the rest of the play, the stuff Shakespeare wrote, but Kemp was a comedian's comedian, and I was always having to move just as he got into his flow, hearing the joke, but never the punchline. But we were running out of time. Approaching the jagged end of history, Ellie was right, we had to get out. There was a warehouse near the river that was the subject of a furious inheritance lawsuit. It was piled high with crates and boxes, imperishable goods brought in from the Indies and tied up in the courts until one of seven warring brothers would finally prevail over the others in around 1603. That was our home for the nine months of the years 1597-8 to that history had snapped off and preserved. We always arrived in the bitter cold of December, laden with our meagre possessions, hurrying through the snow-scattered streets to our makeshift sanctuary. We left in a September that was just being leached of the heat of summer, just as Will Kemp was making them laugh at the curtain. Four times. I had crept into this London four times with Ellie and Marcus, with a handful of families at our heels, living in the untenanted spaces of history by borrowing and theft and subterfuge, and then moving on. We got back to the warehouse double time, by all the secret ways of that close-breast, cluttered London, roofs and alleyways and connecting cellars, we were dressed as locals, but we were not supposed to be there, surplus to temporal requirements. It was best to avoid being noticed. And there were always the hunters. We'd lost four fragments in the past year. My personal year, that was cut loose from all calendars. Nobody knew where would be next. We refugees were running short of safe havens. We were always on the move. There was no life, not for me, and certainly not for the children, the infirm. So few of us had made it out from the fall of history. We did our best to look after everyone. Marcus had a look like sour milk when we turned up. Do you know how late you are? Plenty of time, I told him, but it wasn't true. Everything around us was starting to look grainy, shot through with streaks and fuzzy spots, noise in the signal, signs that a fragment was coming to its end. Out there, old London town was unravelling, breaking apart against the rocks of end time. Nobody would notice except us, the inhabitants, Will Kemp, all the theatre-goers, they would disintegrate into nothing and never know it. If we didn't get out, we'd join them, only we'd not be made anew when the fragment began its nine-month round again. We'd just be gone. Patrick Scarrow and his family were ready to move, and Beth Nagoyan and her kids, and the Vitzels and the Morrow girls... We had twenty-one souls in our care, eternal refugees from when they destroyed the now. The kids were complaining, mostly in whispers. It didn't matter how many times, the life was still too disjointed to be good for them. Worse than just having to move school every year or so. Each time they packed their bags, they might be headed off for the halls of Prester John, or Dark Age Siberia, or some time before mammals had even evolved. Speaking of which, where are we headed? You've taken a reading. Marcus gave me another look. Just as well someone did. One month of Babylon, we're overlapping with another troop, but it's the only safe shard I could plot to. After that, it's a year in a Paleolithic. <laughs> Make the most of Babylon, then, Ellie said dryly. I passed among the others, making sure all the kids were keeping close to their folks and that everyone had shouldered their packs and bags. 
Everyone had dressed for the occasion, robes and skirts, bare chests for the men, jewellery for the women. Babylon was a soft touch, but if there were other refugees already eking out a living there, we'd be in each other's way and on each other's toes every day. A populated fragment has its advantages. Plenty of food to steal, plenty of comforts and conveniences if you're sly enough about how you take advantage of them. Living space is tough to find, though. There just aren't many places in any city of any time that will stay overlooked for the duration. The invisible spaces of Babylon in 1700 BC would already be staked out and claimed by whoever was taking refuge there. That this sort of doubling up was becoming more common as fragments were lost to us must have been in all our minds, but nobody said it. Nobody wanted to admit we were losing. Not even losing the war. A war suggests we could fight back. We had been on the run since the end of time, desperately trying to put back the clock, and our enemies had hunted us through the eras and the ages, taking away our hiding places one by one. One day they would find this old London we were abandoning, and then Will Kemp would be no more, and his humorous monologue would be forever lost to human recollection. All right, let's move, Marcus called, opening the doors from one ruined dog end of time to the next, keeping us one step ahead of the enemy. Everyone began to file through, and I cast a backwards glance at the warehouse, even as the site was riven with cracks and discoloured stains. I would be back, I hoped, back for another of 1597's endless supply of Decembers, and many more after that. There had indeed been a war. Did we win? The question has no meaning. It was a cold war. Nobody was actually fighting because that would have been boorish and uneconomic. Instead, competing commercial and ideological interests, one of them ours, were spinning the wheels frantically behind the scenes to find a way to beat the others without ever having to fight. You heard about all sorts from those who remembered those lost last years. There were gene bombs and attack memes. There were viral ideas gone feral, adverse mental programming on a vast scale. You didn't know what to believe, they said. And even when you did, you didn't trust your own faith because someone might have slipped it into your drink. It was a strange war. It killed ideas but left people standing. Every day our society was written and rewritten. Small wonder that they'd started looking at taking the war into time. Surely the ultimate piece of passive aggression was to preempt the bad guys before they even knew what they were going to do. It didn't work out. We hit the cooling night of Babylon after the rains had come and gone, creeping out from the cracks of the world into the shadows of the temples. The air was still, scented with fragrant smoke, with distant decay. Around us the darkened city was quiet, but there would surely be locals abroad who would not want to see this ragged band of refugees struggling through their streets. Getting to the safe house would be risky. If we had arrived at the beginning of the fragment, when everything had reset to its earliest surviving moment, then we could know exactly where all the inhabitants would be and follow a predetermined path that would get us under cover unseen before dawn. This fragment was months into its cycle, though, and the mere presence of other refugees would have exercised a cumulative effect on the routines of the city. Despite their best efforts to stay below the radar, we would have to rely on stealth and misdirection. Marcus and Ellie and I would take turns to lead anyone away who looked like they would take issue with a group of foreigners skulking through their streets, and still we expected to be seen by a fair assortment of beggars, prostitutes, and drunken artisans. We could only hope that we wouldn't cause any problems for the incumbents. We would be waiting just a month before we skipped off for the ear scene while they were fixing to stay here for the duration and would have to ride out any ripples that we had made. We made it in the end, just as dawn was clawing at the eastern sky. 
There were almost no locals about that night, and those we saw were only glimpsed distantly and were as keen to avoid us as we were to dodge them. At the time I thought that we'd been lucky. The safe house here was a tomb, or at least a tomb in waiting. The intended resident would be alive and well throughout the fragment's term, still clinging grimly to life when time called a fractured halt to this slice of Babylon. In the meantime, his forward planning and the vanity of his wanting a grand monument to his posterity gave us a roof over our heads. "'Who's here, anyway?' I asked Marcus as we hurried and skulked and turned through the moon-shrouded streets. "'Maria, Leon, son, maybe another thirty, all told,' he told me. "'Gonna be real crowded. We won't be making any friends.' Everyone on their best behavior. It's not like it's our fault, I objected, but he cut me off. Doesn't matter. Gonna be standing in room only for a month, and that's not their fault either. If Komoi could only step up the work. It was my turn to butt in. Dr. Komoi is doing all he can to fix this. We were practically in sight of the tomb. Marcus gave out a long sigh, and only through that did he show just how tired he was. John, it's been almost forty years we've lived like this. I was a kid when it all went to crap. You weren't born. Komoi's had all the time in the world to put the fucking egg back together again. He's not given up hope. That's what he says. Come on. Marcus and I had our charges, Scarrow and Naguyan and the rest, and we got them huddled down in a small street within sight of the tomb while Ellie went to make contact with the incumbents. By that time, everyone was exhausted. The children, dead on their feet, backs bowed under their loaded lives, all they had of where we'd all come from, mementos of a past and future that no longer existed. We can't keep doing this, Marcus said. I made an urgent expression towards the others who were all within earshot, but he shrugged. I don't care, he went on. It's too hard. We, we just can't keep running. We can if we want to live. The old party line. It won't be forever. His laughter was forced out of him like bile from a wound. <laughs> forever. The end of time won't be forever. Oh, you fucking naive. Then Ellie was on her way back, too soon and too fast. Marcus and I exchanged glances. We were already on our feet by the time she reached us. They, they're gone, she told us. Is this the right fragment, I started, but the locals from Marcus, but she was shaking her head to both of us. They were here. They're gone. Not the locals. No, I heard myself say, but Ellie was already continuing. There are burn marks all over, spent shell casing, someone's put up a fight. This fragment is compromised. No, I said again, and I was aware of a gathering murmur of despair and fear from everyone around us, but Marcus hissed for quiet. Somewhere, across the city, the enemy was abroad. Small wonder we'd seen so few locals. There would be a genocide underway, even as we crouched there. This small, jagged fragment of space and time was being cleansed and sterilized. We had lost Babylon. One more piece of history was no longer safe for human habitation. We need to move, Ellie said. We need somewhere to move to, Marcus pointed out sourly. Give me a chance. There must be somewhere we can reach from here. John, you two, I'll take upstream. You take down. We did the math over an hour, calculating our way out of fallen Babylon. At any moment, the enemy could have found us and we would all have died. I had glimpsed the enemy once before, during an escape that was far too tight and diminished the surviving population of human history by another twenty souls. They were sufficiently advanced that there was no resisting them. Hiding was all we had. They were things left over from the war that had stopped the wheels of history, ended the world, and robbed us not only of all that we had, but of all that was to come.
The only thing we knew was that they were hunting us down, we refugees from the war, one rough-edged piece of time after another. Vermin. That's what we were to them. Vermin. To be exterminated. I searched and searched. I found a dozen mapped fragments within reach, not one of them to anywhere with dry land and some without even a breathable atmosphere. So much of our own past is denied to us, a planet hostile to the meek who would one day inherit it. One, I said at last. Marcus checked my results. The middle of a Carboniferous Ice Age, a frozen forest where a spark would set off a firestorm. No, he said. And Ellie chimed, I've found another. She was always faster than me. Then why didn't you... I was hoping you'd do better, she said sadly. We can get to Warsaw. No, I breathed, aware of all the eyes on us, the desperate, the lost, the eternally displaced. There must be something else. I was seriously going to argue for the ice, for the giant bugs, for the dizzying high oxygen atmosphere of the Carboniferous. He was right, though. The difference between that time near inimitable to human life and the Warsaw ghetto was slight, but we might have a chance. There would be a way out, if only we could find it. They broke time in that war. Because we can never go back there, we'll never know who was responsible, whether it was everyone incrementally twisting at the fabric of time, or whether the continuum just fractured the moment the first time engine went online. Or perhaps, as Marcus says, it was just the concept of mutually assured destruction taken to its logically illogical extreme, a preemptive strike against time itself to stop it falling into the hands of the enemy. Perhaps they meant to do it. The cracks coursed through history like a mouse running down a clock. Some small number of us, and by us I mean the seven billion human beings who were alive to see those final days of sanity, were snatched out of time before it broke, preserved by brilliant men like Dr. Komoy. We are theoretically the lucky ones, at least we still exist. Doc Komoy and his team are still mapping the expanding debris cloud that is time itself. When we find a fragment we can reach, we catalogue it, plot it, inventor it. The science is not academic. We are looking for sanctuary, temporary shelters from the storm. For the first few decades it was us against the end of the world, blazing our trails through the monsters of prehistory and the depredations of our own ancestors to find places that would be safe to hide in, even for a little while. Then we discovered that one other thing had survived the annihilation. The enemy, whoever and whatever they were. As we scurried from fragment to fragment, eking out our miserable existence in the spaces between, they were hunting us. Even this tenuous life was more than they were prepared to allow us. Warsaw, 1943, and it is an insult to that city's name that only this shard of it remains, its darkest hour, the last three months of the ghetto, Jewish and Polish resistance fighters, desperate and poorly armed, clashing with Nazi troops and collaborator police, a thousand plans of getting out, so few of which came to anything, an implacable enemy, the doom of utter annihilation hanging in the air. The only advantage to that terrible place was that we fit right in. No point trying to hide, because every hidden part of that city was already crammed with the fearful. We can't stay here long. We'd got everyone into a shelter, the cellar of a collapsed house. There were a dozen families already there, pushed together on top of one another. Starved, dirty faces stared at us, seeing our bizarre clothes, our mix of ethnicities, the fact that we were all far too well fed. They would all be dead, I knew. They were already dead. The Nazis would storm the ghetto as this fragment of time began to fail. 
Every one of these people had been preserved by that malevolent cripple history solely to suffer, to hope and fear, dread and die over and over again. We need a proper sanctuary, Ellie said. There's nothing I can see where we'd be safe hiding up. Someone has to make it to Komoi and get him to find us somewhere. We don't have enough data here. Can we even get someone to Komoi? Marcus asked her. I have a path, she confirmed. It was nineteen fragments long, skipping from timepiece to timepiece, in and out of history like a rat in the skirting, scant minutes to cross between the shards. We could never have got the children through it, probably not most of the adults, but then staying in Warsaw for any length of time was no better. Time would be of the essence. I'll do it. And it was my creeping shame that courage did not motivate me. I could not face the end in Warsaw another time. I'd seen it too often. The broken fragments of history have sharp edges. Marcus nodded bluntly, and I looked over Ellie's obstacle course. It was mostly out of recorded time, a worm trail through monster-haunted spaces that man had no place travelling in. My finger tracked to a projected five late Devonian minutes, and I raised my eyebrow. Hold your breath, said Ellie, and kissed me lightly on the cheek. I walked the tops of glaciers when they ruled the world, huddling and hurrying in my too thin clothes. I lurched from them into a desert that spanned the horizons that could have been anywhere save that in this time it was near everywhere. The sun tried to kill me. Elsewhere it was pelicosaurs at my heels with their razor teeth. For one minute I walked the streets of Pompeii where the ash had yet to fall. The eruption would never come to this fragment and yet its work had already been done. The locals were gone, removed entirely not a living thing remaining. The enemy had been there. We had lost another crumb of our past. I held my breath and ran through the uncertain Devonian, crushing liverworts beneath my feet, a pelting figure from a lost future, dashing through the ferns and towering hands of fungus. Ellie had plotted my escape well. She always did have the best head for it. Me? The only things I was really good at were running and hiding. We had retained a lot of the Permian, snapped off pieces of it, scattered like stones across the broken substrate of time. Some of those fragments were years long, even centuries. They were harsh, dry times, the age before the dinosaurs, populated by starving monsters, each shard a memento of a time when all life on Earth was sliding inexorably towards an extinction that would claim very nearly everything that lived. The world would only know one greater disaster, and that was ours. It was fitting that Dr. Comoy had made his home there, cycling between a dozen bestial inhospitable fragments and taking his laboratory with him. Nobody else was permitted to set up in residence along the course of his peregrinations in case they got in his way. He was not a man fond of company or of the human race much. He was its only hope, though, so it had no choice but to be fond of him. Permian One was his migratory home, where he and his staff and guards were trying to start the clocks again. It was the hope of every lost, scattered, desperate soul who crept in and out of the fragments and scurried from era to era. Doc Comoy will fix it. I believed. I thought I believed. I'd lived all my life to that mantra. We will remake the world again, glue the fragments back into a hole. Somehow the misanthropic genius would save us all, give the universe CPR, turn back time. I hadn't been to Permian one in six years of personal time. My faith had sat at the back of my mind, comforting in its presence, never needing to be unsheathed. When I had talked with Marcus, the doubter I had taken Comoy's side, always, 
Of course he would succeed in fixing it all. What other alternative was there that was worth the consideration? I found his prefab compound exactly as before, that set of metal boxes that they took down and put up each time he moved his base to another piece of doomed Permian time. I went in, seeing the faces I remembered, his subordinate scientists, his guards, all their grim and drawn expressions, harried and weary, just like before. Just like before, all of it. I think that was when it broke. My faith had sat back there for so long it had corroded into nothing. And when I tried to test it, it just broke. Dr. Comoy himself was in his high chair, a cherry-picker affair that lifted him up and down the bank of screens that displayed the secrets of the universe, or at least those few pieces of it that we could still access. He was an old man now, older than last time, skin like sun-cracked leather, liver-spotted, pouchy about the eyes, sunken in about his cheeks, old. He, he looked old, but other than that I might as well have just left a moment before. Here was the saviour of the human race, the engineer of time. I had the utter conviction then that nothing was being done, no progress was being made. Doc Comoy, after jury-rigging together the calculations that allowed the dozens of refugee bands to limp from timepiece to timepiece, had achieved nothing. In all of my life he had just been marking time. I did not voice it. I could not have brought forward the maths to prove it. I could not shake the belief, though. I had a new faith and it was pure nihilism. I got out the problem, my band stranded in Warsaw's darkness. I needed an access, and I needed it yesterday. We had to get them out. This small service he could provide, this prolonging of the end, his great computers and his greater mind, gave me the path they must follow on my own to get back to them. Even as I looked at the sequences, though, I was doubting them. Was this why even our precarious hold on time was breaking down? Was this why the enemy was winning? Was Dr. Comoy fallible in everything? Were we just now seeing the inevitable disintegration of a system that he had not thought through? I left Permian 1. I had 250 million years to cover, and no time at all to do it in. I wove my way in and out of history, dodging cavemen and dinosaurs, revolutionaries and the Golden Horde. In my mind was the distant candle flame that was Warsaw, so soon to be snuffed out. I was always a runner, and I ran. Nobody could have made better use of time than I. I did not stop for man or beast or cataclysm. And I was late. I was too late. Was I slow, or were the calculations wrong? Perhaps it had never been possible, just as the long-term survival of all that we knew was only a dream. I arrived in Warsaw, but it was a different Warsaw. The fragment had ended and begun again, all the pieces, Jews and Poles and Nazis, reset on the board. And no Ellie, no Marcus, no Scarrows or Naguyan or the rest of them. I was too late. They might have got out, knowing the end was coming of the ghetto and of time, one and then the other in a great wave of pain and fear and utter oblivion. Perhaps they calculated an exit. Ellie was always good at the figures after all. There were fragments they could have made, or Doc Comoy's calculations said there were, unless it was a lie. Or perhaps the enemy had come and wiped them away, shot them and removed them from the ruptured track of history. Or the Nazis had stormed the ghetto as they always did, and Ellie and the others had just been more corpses amongst so many, so very many. Or the end had come, the real end, 
where time's frayed edge caught up with them, and when the fragment began again, they were gone, erased from time and space, made as if they never were. In the ghetto, I knelt down and wept, screamed out my frustrations to the sky, and shrugged off the attempts of those doomed and desperate people to comfort me. I was alone, and Doc Comoy's escape route was consigned to history. I sat there in the ruins and the ashes amongst that other fugitive people, and did my own maths, not elegant Ellie maths, but my ham-fisted imitation. I had to get out. Even with nothing to get out for, a part of me wanted to live. Life has its own momentum. Ask the people in the Warsaw Ghetto. No matter how bad it is, everyone wants to live. It took me two years of my life, and I walked from one end of time to the other, but I made it back to Permian One. I hid in the Rome of the Medicis, and cowered back from the wise, cold eyes of the Neanderthals. I did what I did best. I ran from the Mughals and the Zulus and the Iceni and Tyrannosaurus Rex. When at last I found the jump into the Permian fragment that the doctor was using, I saw it was true. Nothing had changed at all. He was older, they were all older, the clocks of their bodies marching on in ignorance of what had happened to wider time, but that was all. Oh, they were all busy, and there was the great impression of things being done. But I knew I was right. It was all a show, even if Dr. Comoy himself believed in it. They're gone, I told him. And from his expression, he either didn't know who I meant, or did not care. That was when the enemy arrived. I had never seen them properly before. I did not do so then, quite. They were humanoid, armoured. But what they were armoured in was proof against mere light, as well as more violent measures. They shifted and warped and flickered, and yet at the same time they were the most definite concrete things in that complex. They were death, after all. There's nothing more real than death. Like death, they were patient hunters. They had been stalking me for a long time, following me from fragment to fragment, effortless in their transitions while I scratched and strained at the mathematics. They tried to hide from me, but I was too much of an experienced fugitive. I'd known they were there. I led them to Permian One. I led them to Dr. Comoy. It wasn't as if I was doing anything else with my time. None of us were. That was the problem. I had not known whether they were people at all before that. They were the enemy from before time broke, but I had thought they were no more than machines following the last orders of history. Until one spoke, I chose to believe that they were simple annihilators, the things that come at the end of the day to close the shutters and put out the sun. Dr. Robert Comoy, one of them said. Impossible to tell which one, but it was a woman's human voice, strong and stern. You and your accomplices will be taken into custody for trial and disposal. Any attempted escape will be met with force. The old man on his ridiculous high chair goggled down at them. What are you doing? His frail voice demanded. Can't you see I'm trying to put the world back together? We are already restoring time, the woman returned flatly. The only thing standing between us and a unified time stream 
is that the interference caused by the presence of you and your people is preventing us. We cannot repair time with your vermin running riot among the pieces. You will either come with us and be rehabilitated, or you will be removed. Removed. She said it as though it had a capital letter. Excised from time. Even then I couldn't have said whether it was true. Were they able to put the egg back together again? Were we the problem rather than the solution? Perhaps there was no solution. Dr. Comoy was spitting, trying to force out words that were too big for the gape of his mouth, but then someone started shooting. Someone always starts shooting. Give a man a gun and he will want to use it. Perhaps that mentality is what caused this mess in the first place. The enemy opened fire in return, beams of energy scorching and scouring whatever they touched. I wanted no part of it. Ellie and Marcus and the rest were gone and I was on nobody's side but my own. I had my calculations already made. While they were fighting, while the enemy were triumphing over Doc Comoy and his wretched little Permian dream, I fled. It had taken me long hours of patient calculation, but once I knew the enemy were content to follow me, I realized that I had time, for the first time in a long time, to get it right. There was a fragment of the Eocene, that dawn age after the extinction of all the old dinosaurs, that was three years long, and I stepped from the burning confusion of Comoy's compound into a bright new day. The enemy would hunt me. If what they said was true, then I would gum up their works just by daring to exist. The Eocene was a big place, though, and running and hiding are what I'm good at, after all. As long as the enemy leave me fragments, I'll find a hole to shelter in. I have the whole of my life ahead of me. And when I'm old, when I've seen it all, that pitiful miscellany that is all that is left, perhaps I'll go back to that cluttered London, if the enemy have left it. I'll stand amongst the groundlings at the curtain and listen to Will Kemp's final routine, his farewell speech to all of creation. I'll laugh out the end of the fragment into painless extinction and let them save the universe. But not yet. Not when I'm still using it. I've got a long way left to run. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Adrian Tchaikovsky's. And a big thank you to Al Barkley. Like I say, a massive thank you, Al. Thank you so much. Like I say, we are just talking, me and Jeremy, before there. About narrators, Al, that's stunning. If you want to get in touch with Starship Shover, it's just, if you fancy narrating, see how good I am, drop me a line, starshipsover at gmail.com. Now, before we get into the next story by Adrian Tchaikovsky, a couple of little things. First up, the there is only, oh, I think it's days there left now, nine days left for Kickstarter. If you want to come over and get tickets to see our online science fiction convention in March from the Kickstarter appeal, there's lots of different options there. We would love to have you. It would be fantastic. You know what I mean? It would just be amazing. There's nine days left from Wednesday, from the day which is the 5th of November. There's nine days left, so come on. You can get a one-day ticket, a two-day ticket. You can get all sorts of little kind of perks. But it would be just lovely to kind of have the numbers up there and, you know, get you in there to watch it because I want to do this, you know, it would be nice to do this every year. It would be fantastic if we can kind of pull this off. So it would be lovely to see you. So we're going to play the next short story by Adrian Tchaikovsky. The story is The 21st Century Girl. The narrator for this is Anne-Marie Kowalski. 
Anne-Marie is a postgraduate in the Royal College of Music. She was a, reg- a regular soloist at the Royal College with fellow student Alfie Bohr. <laughs> oh man, and has sung on Channel 4 and the Royal Gala performances on ITV. Her recently performed concert repertoire includes Mild Ulysses from Tristan, I've butchered that up as well, and Isabel by Wagner on tour in Berlin with the LUSO in association with Opera North. She also has a teaching practice and amongst her students are Laura Mailing, who won the 2012 British Female Solo Artist at the Brit Awards, comedian Lenny Henry and UK Classic Chart Number 1, Rebecca Newman. There you go. Do you know what I'm going to say? So, no, because honestly, Anne, wow, man, Anne-Marie. This is, no, this is no word of a lie, honestly. Because I was brought up, right, this is a, before we get into kind of Adrian's story, there, just give us, give us a couple of minutes there just to kind of waffle on down the road of my, you know, past and history and everything. I was brought up on kind of music like the undertones and the buzz talk, buzzcocks and, you know, the dickies and all kind of 1977 punk rockers and everything like that and still kind of hark to them days, the skids and everything like that. But... About four, four or five years ago, I kind of, for some reason, hit upon trying to get into classical music. And it's kind of so far away from us. Do you know what I mean? It was kind of such a, a, a diverse thing, you know, from, from where I was to where I am now. Or where I want, you know, just trying to get in to listen to it. And I just started listening. And honestly, I'm not joking. It's just enveloped us. Do you know what I mean? I was kind of, I know Diane Searson's, she's a classically trained singer there and sings all over. And Diane kind of gives a few pointers, you know, and I put a few, you know, you know shouts out, what should I listen to? I, you know, I was so lost. I didn't understand it. You know what I mean? It is a kind of a, an in-depth, you know, to where to start when you've listened to kind of buzzcocks ever fall in love with someone. Where do you go from that to, to opera? But now, it's honestly, it's quite a, a it's, it's a comfort blanket. To finish work, you know, like in a, any kind of shift I do at work, to finish work and just have on opera when I'm in the car driving home, it's just like, a, that's it, the end of the work and day is done and I'm just kind of in my car and just taking the dogs out, do you know what I mean? Just having Carmen belting out in me as you know, and I'm kind of walking the dogs. It's just a fantastic feeling. And like I say, there's a few comfort blankets in me life, you know, to get us through me life. You know, Red Dwarf's a comfort blanket there. And Opera Now is a lovely one, just to kind of just get unwound, you know, get a bath at night time and have the opera blasting, you know what I mean? It's just lovely. So, Amory, you know what I mean? And this is no word of a lie as well. Domain names, you know, I'm always kind of buying domain names. I bought the domain name, Geordie Opera. <laughs> what the hell I'm going to do with it? But I had the domain name Geordie Opera. Was I going to start a kind of Geordie, you know, opera radio show? I have no idea. But I was just, it, it means that much to us, you know what I mean? It's, a, it's a certainly a, a thing now where, you know, music-wise, it's up there at the same level as me kind of, me punk rock roots and everything like that, you know, and, and just to get submerged in it, it's just so vast. And, you know, to have someone like Anne-Marie on the show who's just kind of makes a living out of that and everything, I'm chuffed a bit, you know. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for coming on Starship Sova. So, after all that, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. 21st Century Girl by Adrian Tchaikovsky Do you dream of mammoths? A talk show host once asked me. 
I knew not to give him my first choice of answer. That would have enlightened his audience over the course of three and a half hours, had they only had the basic grounding in biosciences required to understand it. I also knew enough to avoid my second answer, which was that his question was unintelligent, and that the entire interview had been time better spent in the laboratory. What I actually said was, no more than you do. And the sound that the audience made told me that they liked that, had gained their sympathy somehow. I couldn't see precisely the mechanism by which this had happened, but I filed the memory away with all the others, my empirical evidence of the human condition by which I attempt to govern my social interaction with my fellow hominids. Another one I get is, you must have had a difficult childhood. That throws me, because it isn't a question, and so you can't really answer it. It's a statement, to which the only response, if response is even required, is, yes. Of course I must. Why say the obvious? Except that interviews are all about them saying the obvious, and me replying with lies and simplifications, because that is, I have learnt, what they want to hear. When I was fifteen, my foster parents took me aside for the talk. The bulk of my difficult childhood was behind me, although I had yet to learn most of the coping strategies I now rely on. I was essentially friendless, more comfortable interacting online than off, an academic overachiever, and unable to understand why that didn't come with the positive social payoff that I had been led to expect. I didn't like crowds, or strangers much. My world was comfortable with only a few other people in it. <laughs> no different, really, from hundreds of other children across the world. I had thought that I knew what the talk was going to be. They had never said, but I knew I wasn't their natural offspring, by deduction from first principles. I didn't look like them. I was built differently. And I spent ages looking at my face in the mirror, tracing the contours of nose and chin and forehead. I was a striking girl. People who know about me now say I'm ugly, but that's a judgment influenced by their foreknowledge that they think I should be ugly, and so they recast my features in that unflattering light. Striking is the word I prefer, not even unique, if you take each feature on its own. Not resembling my foster parents, though. I know, I told them. I'm adopted. They were unsure how to proceed. I could see that this was not, in fact, what the talk was to be about. Perhaps I shouldn't have said anything, but that is something I still have difficulties with, knowing when to withhold knowledge. It seems so counterintuitive to do so. We had the talk, at last. I wonder how many other disaffected and sociable children wait for just that revelation. You are something special. There is a reason why you are not like them. The talk was about adoption, in a way, about telling me who my parents were. My mother was stem cell research and my father was gene sequencing. When I was twenty and had been accepted for my doctorate, I made the decision to go public. You'll recall the media storm. No one knew quite what to do with me. 
The geneticists behind my genesis had done something unethical, and yet, at the same time, their detractors wanted to study me. There were legal battles in which I was a determined participant. If I was to be a test subject stripped of human rights, then at the same time my reviled creators were guilty of nothing more than making a thing. Alternatively, if they had broken the boundaries of professional ethics, then it could only be because I was a human being. In having me raised amongst their own kind, in showing that I was intellectually and at least borderline socially functional, they sealed their own professional fate and secured mine. They must have known. They have been forgiven since because genius is too valuable a quality to waste. As for me, I did not go into my current discipline purely because of my unique past. I became a geneticist because it is an area where my cognitive strengths shine, my ability to find patterns in complex data and to focus without distraction on the small details of my work is as apposite for the minutiae of modelling gene sequencing outcomes as it would have been for the painstaking production of exacting stone tools. The further I progress in my profession, in fact, the more people I meet who are just like me, despite our different heritages, and the less our different heritages matter in any meaningful way. I will have sisters soon, and brothers, as close to me as blood kin. That project is proceeding specifically because I have been more than a success. I and my people have valuable intellectual traits that the world can use. I am not working on that team, though. I have other genomes to sequence, other verdicts of history to reverse. And still people want to know, what's it like being you? What's it like to be brought back, to be taken from your proper time? And I answer that this is my time, that I am a child of the 21st century. And if I, Homo sapiens neo-neanderthalensis, did not evolve to live in cities and use the internet and make advances in the field of genetics, then neither did Homo sapiens sapien, and we will both have to make do. And why would I need a dream of mammoths when these days I can step out of my office and just watch them? <laughs> There you go, Anne-Marie. I'm glad you are a good narrator after all that build-up. Thank you so much. And Adrian, it's lovely to have you on board Starship Sova. We'll have to have a little chat, you know, once you kind of get your sci-fi novel out there. That would be a fan sci-fi, science fiction, should I say, novel. That would be fantastic. Get you on the show for a little interview. That would be lovely. So next up is, we've got a, a fact article, or it's, it's Mark Zickery, who's Mr. Sci-Fi Man on the YouTube channel. Mark sent us over, actually it was David Raiklin. David and Mark must be good friends, and sent over this sci-fi man, Mark Zickery, talking to Rod Sterling, you know, about Ray Bradbury, talking to, talking about Rod Sterling and Ray Bradbury. And, you know, Mark tells a story, you know, it's 20-odd minutes long. I've only listened to 10 minutes of it, but I love it. Mark is just a great storyteller, and you just get lost in his world, you know, kind of Mark knows and, and knew all these kind of people, and that's the, the neat thing about it. Do you know what I mean? Mark's been there and done it and sport them. Just fantastic. Mark, this is tremendous, this. It's Mark Zickery, Mr. Sci-Fi, also known as Mark Zickery of Space Command. 
And I'm here today to talk about Ray Bradbury and Rod Serling. This is a story that was told directly to me by Ray. It's never been published as far as I know. It's an amazing story, and it'll take a little while to tell, so, uh, so settle down with a good beverage, <laughs> and, uh, and we'll, we'll get into it. So basically where I started with this was uh, I graduated from college at the age of 21, and I was a painting, sculpture, and graphic arts major. But by then, I had sold my first short story at 19. I had attended the Clarion Writers Workshop and had actually sold the story to one of my instructors who was editing an anthology. It was a writer named Damon Knight who also wrote the very famous short story To Serve Man, which was made into a very famous Twilight Zone episode of the same name. So even then, I had a Twilight Zone lineage going on and, of course, had grown up loving and watching Twilight Zone. So I knew when I got out of college that I wanted to be a writer-producer working in television, but there were no classes in that, no way to learn it. So I thought, well, if I write about one of the greatest TV shows ever made, if not the greatest TV show, maybe I'll learn how to do this job and I can forge a career for myself, which is exactly what happened. So uh, I'd met George Clayton Johnson, one of the writers of Twilight Zone, at a science fiction convention when I was 16, and we'd become friends. And I started by interviewing him, and I ultimately ended up uh, interviewing 30 people via George, who had worked on the show. Then I went to Carol Sterling, Rod's widow. This is two years after Rod's death. And uh, she gave me full access to everything of Rod's. I, I was crawling through his attic, going through his files and scrapbooks, taking home his 16-millimeter prints of the Twilight Zone. And ultimately, I interviewed over 100 people who worked on the show, many of whom are gone now, and, of course, wrote The Twilight Zone Companion, which many of you, I'm sure, have read. And, uh, and I'm very proud of that book, needless to say. So at one point, while I'm researching... I'm up in Rod's attic where he kept his big scrapbooks. He subscribed to a clipping service and he had these big leather volumes year by year by year by year. It was essentially an encyclopedia of Rod Serling. It was, it was amazing material. But there was one box that I found in his attic where nothing was written on the box. It wasn't labeled. And uh, I opened it up and inside it was filled with Twilight Zone scripts that were written but never made. And there were scripts by Serling and Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont and one by Arch Obler, who created Lights Out in radio, and two by Ray Bradbury. And one was a script entitled Here They Be Tigers, and the other was a script entitled, entitled uh, Miracle of Rare Device. They were both adaptations of his short stories, and they were both brilliant scripts. And on one, on Here They Be Tigers, which was dated 1959, Ray had written, handwritten, a note to Rod saying, uh, Rod, here's the, the first in what will be many great scripts that, that I'll be doing for Twilight Zone. I look forward to a fruitful and long-term relationship working on the show. It was words to that effect. So I thought, well, something is clearly mysterious here because in, in the end, neither of those scripts got made and, uh, on Twilight Zone. And, and Ray only wrote one episode of the Twilight Zone in the third season. Uh, it was called I Sing the Body Electric. It was based on another of his short stories about an electric grandmother, a robot. And, uh, and, and so I thought, clearly there's something going on here. And so and I'd heard rumblings that, that Ray and Rod had had a falling out somewhere along the, the, the way. And so, so I wrote to Ray Bradbury, and I said, uh, Mr. Bradbury, I'm writing a book on the Twilight Zone. I'd love to interview you. And he wrote me back on his stationery, and his stationery was very uh, curious because the, the letterhead was a cross-section of what looked to be a Victorian house filled with odd rooms, filled with, um, and the rooms were full of very strange bric-a-brac. And I, wonder, I thought at the time that this must be Ray's house. Years later, I found out that it was actually a cross-section of a house of Sir John Soane, who was a collector of weird stuff in, uh, in Britain in the late 
uh, 18th and early 19th centuries. And in fact, it's now a museum, the Sir John Soane Museum. And I actually went there uh, with raised compliments many years later. But at the time, I didn't know that. It just I, I just saw this cool letterhead. And the letter said, Dear Mr. Zikri, I prefer not to write, and then he handwrit or talk uh, about the Twilight Zone. The work I did stands for itself. Uh, but uh, meanwhile, I must tend to my play, The Martian Chronicles, which will soon be uh, premiering at the El Rey Theater. And so, <laughs> so I was a cocky... 22-year-old at that point, and uh, I thought, well, geez, he's, he's refusing to let me interview him, but he's asking me to pay money to go see his play. He's basically putting a plug for his play in his letter that's refusing to let me talk to him. So being an art major, at that point I could draw and paint and sculpt and do all those things. So I sat down and I drew a copy of the floor plan of his letterhead, and I populated it with the house, the cross-section of this house, with all the things that I was interested in. So in one, in one uh, room, there was the Last Supper going on, exactly as da Vinci had laid it out. There was uh, a Brontosaurus in another room. There was Gort from Day of the Earth stood still in another room. And I, ba- and I wrote my little address uh, and name under that, just as Ray's address and name were under his stationery. And I wrote back, Dear Mr. Bradbury, thank you very much for your letter. Uh, I wish I could write a longer letter, but I must tend to the writing of my book, uh, The Twilight Zone Companion, which, be- which will soon be available in bookstores across the country and and uh, so I was basically satirizing his letter to me and I sent that off to him and kept a copy of it myself and for many years I had that on my wall and uh, Theodore Sturgeon who was another great science fiction writer whose uh, first book in fact without sorcery uh, had an introduction by uh, by Ray uh, in fact I've got a copy signed by both of them uh, he um, Ted saw that on my wall those two letters and said good for you uh, he's gotten too big for his britches so <laughs> so so there was a there was a friendly uh, you know thing going on between Ray Bradbury and Theodore Sturgeon at that point, but um, but 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 again, so I so I wrote the Twilight Zone Companion without knowing what this what the story was, and and some people would tell me little bits and pieces of it, but they were invariably mistaken and and in error as to the details. So for instance, William Nolan, who was a great uh, biographer of Ray, a great uh, friend of Ray and protege, William F. Nolan told me that the reason that they had a falling out was because uh, Rod had plagiarized a short story of Ray's called The Black Ferris in his episode Walking Distance. So, of course, I went and tracked down The Black Ferris. The Black Ferris is a story that was the basis for Ray's novel, Something Wicked This Way Comes, and... Um, and in it, there's a, there's a Ferris wheel that if, if it goes one direction, you age, and if it goes the other direction, you get younger. And, uh, and I said, and so in walking distance had nothing to do with that. There's nothing, walking distance is about a man who goes back into his own past and encounters his childhood. And there's a Ferris, uh, there's a, a merry-go-round, merry a, a carousel. But no, no Ferris wheel. So when I when I told uh, told this to, to William F. Nolan, he said, "Oh well, obviously I was mistaken. I, I got it wrong." So he recanted that charge. So. So years went by. The book came out. It was very successful, and I, I established my career as a writer, producer, in television, and was doing very, very well. And uh, and and it, be, it, be, it was a mystery that stayed a mystery. And uh, and then, as I recounted in the, one of my in the previous video I did last week about how Ray and I became friends, we became friends in the last decade of his life. And uh, and it, at first, when I met Ray, I didn't even tell him this history. I didn't tell him I'd written The Twilight Zone Companion, because if he had a sour taste in his mouth about The Twilight Zone, I didn't want to have it sour our friendship. So it was a while before I finally worked up my courage once, once our friendship got going and told him I'd written The Twilight Zone Companion. And in fact, he even signed my copy of that book. And, uh, and I said, okay, so Ray, tell me what, this, what the scoop is with you and Rod. What happened? And uh, he, uh, he told me that uh, when Twilight Zone was first picked up, 
uh, after Rod did the pilot. It, well, basically, here's a little background on, on Rod and his relationship to science fiction first. Uh, Rod grew up uh, in Binghamton, New York, upstate New York, and he was a huge devotee of movies. He and his older brother, uh, Bob, would go to movies and act out Frankenstein and Dracula, and they read the pulps, they read amazing stories. And So as a kid, he was reading science fiction, but once he was an adult, he really wasn't a devotee or a follower. He didn't go to conventions. He wasn't a fan, quote-unquote, and certainly not exhaustively knowledgeable about the uh, the genre so so as soon as Twi- and, and the only reason he got into twilight zone he didn't want to be a science fiction writer he got into twilight zone because he was uh, censored writing mainstream drama he had wanted to be the arthur miller of television he'd wanted to write uh deep stories about the real world and but whenever he wrote mm, about race or politics or social issues he was censored he couldn't get it across and finally when he wrote something about the congress where he couldn't even say republican or democrat or write anything about any bill of the day uh, or issue of the day, he said to the press, you know, if I put this in the 21st century and populated it with robots, the Congress, put, the, put robots in the Congress, I could have gotten my point across. And that was the seed of the Twilight Zone. So he writes uh, the various pilots for Twilight Zone that fi- and finally gets one of them greenlit as a series. And as soon as that happens, he calls Ray Bradbury, who by then is, of course, one of the great science fiction writers in America. And uh, he says, I, I don't know anything about science fiction. Uh, help me. <laughs> Educate me. And uh, uh, Ray says, well, come over to the house. So that night, Rod went over to Ray's house, and, he, and Ray took him into the basement where his office was. And he said, okay, and he walked up to the bookcase, and he, and he pulled out several books. And one was by himself, and one was by his protege, Richard Matheson, and another was by his protege, Charles Beaumont. And the final one was a book by John Collier, a British short story writer, uh, who wrote many wonderful and strange short stories. And he said, read these, and then let's talk. And uh, so Rod did. And from those books, he hired Matheson as a writer on Twilight Zone, Beaumont as a writer on Tri- Twilight Zone. They became two of the major writers uh, beside Ray and did many great episodes. And uh, and John Collier, he bought uh, a short story of Collier's uh, um, The Chaser, a short story that Doug then, Doug, Doug uh, Hayes then directed as a first season episode starring uh, George Grizzard and Patricia Berry. So so clearly his books had a strong influence on, on, on Rod Serling, and Rod clearly intended for Ray to start writing for Twilight Zone as well, that he would be one of the major writers as well. But then things started to go a bit awry, and where it started was Rod's pilot to Twilight Zone was called Where Is Everybody? And it's about a man wandering uh, a, a, a vacant town and there's no people and he doesn't know who he is and he doesn't know where everyone's gotten to. And finally he uh, collapses and when he uh, comes out of that, he finds that he's actually a, um, an astronaut trainee in an isolation experiment and he's hallucinated the whole thing. So shortly after um, this time, after that got shot, uh, suddenly um, Rod's in bed with, with Carol one night and he realizes, oh my God, inadvertently... I was inspired by a short story by Ray uh, in the Martian Chronicles. It's, called, it's a story called The Empty Towns, where all of the human settlers on Mars have gone back to Earth uh, when there's a, a threat of a nuclear war on Earth. They've gone back to their, their home. And there's a, the, sort of the last man on Mars is <clears throat> wandering all these empty towns looking for other people and finding no one. And finally he locates the last woman on Mars, apparently, and she's not the woman of his dreams, to say the, say the least. So... Ray, uh, so Rod calls Ray immediately and says, I'm, I'm so sorry, I inadvertently uh, ripped off your story and I, I want to make good, I want to, I want to pay you for it and, and, and acknowledge that it was your work. And, uh, and Ray says, no, 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 that's fine. Uh, it's, it's enough that you just acknowledged it, that's fine. We can just continue apace. And Rod says, well, okay then, if, if it's okay with you. Now, now in truth, 
the stories are very, very different. And and uh, Rod uh, was often walking the back lots of the studio and seeing these empty, vacant streets of, of different towns. And and that also could easily have been an inspiration as well. So, but that was that was where it left off. <clears throat> but then a few days later. He called Ray again and he said, look, this thing is just not sitting well with me. I want, I'm going to have my lawyer call you and we'll work out a payment and, and I just want to have this be you know, fair and square. So Ray said, okay, fine. But, uh, but then the lawyer never called. Now in all likelihood, because you know, Rod was writing a gazillion scripts and, and running the show and executive producer and just getting the show going, you know, he probably gave the dictate to his, his lawyer or his team and nothing happened, and he wasn't on top of the fact that nothing happened. So a lot of stuff when you're running a show and you're in the hurly-burly of that, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the incredible maw of production, things can readily fall through the cracks. So that's very possibly what happened. But, but then what was happening with a lot of the writers like, you know, who were in the genre, they started to feel, because Serling was doing all of these stories, that he was uh, ripping them off. He was inspired by their work and not acknowledging it. And, and Ray was saying, well, you should hire someone. Beaumont said to Ray, and Ray said to Rod, you should hire someone who knows the genre, who, who can read your scripts and say, well, this is clearly influenced by this story or clearly influenced by that story. But again, that didn't happen. Now, now here's my take on all of this, because it's very easy to point at something and say, oh, well, that was clearly inspired by this or was clearly inspired by that. Here's how science fiction works. <laughs> In my opinion, everyone who's writing a, a time machine story should be sending a royalty to H.G. Wells' estate because that was something that didn't exist until Wells came up with it. And every time machine story since has been clearly influenced by H.G. Wells. Or, you know, so ba basically, what, and what I'm not serious about that, of course, but what I mean is that, that if, if you're writing for Galaxy or, or Worlds of If or Astounding or Amazing Stories and everyone's writing for a cent a word or five cents a word, then you read, everyone's reading everyone else's work and if you write a story about an android and then your buddy is inspired by that and sort of gives a, does his riff on an android story or an alien story or a first contact story, everyone is riffing off everyone else. It's a, and, and you know, in fact, I've mentioned in other Mr. S Mr. Uh, Science Sci-Fi videos that, um, you know, when, um, when, when, uh, you know, when, when I was reading science fiction in the 50s, all of them were sort of writing in a shared universe of assumptions where we'd go to the moon, we'd colonize the moon, we'd go to Mars, colonize Mars, uh, ultimately come up with a warp drive, head out into the stars. Heinlein and Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury were all writing in this shared universe. But when everyone is writing for the same amount, no one gets their nose out of joint because you're not going to get nose, nose out of joint over five cents a word or a penny a word. Everyone is doing equally well or equally badly because of how science fiction paid. And it was a small community of only a few thousand people at that time. And they were all going to conventions and the fans and the writers were all part of the community. But all of a sudden, here comes Rod Serling and he's not writing for a penny a word or five cents a word. He's writing for thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And so then, you know, if he's writing a first contact story or a, or a time travel story or a, or a first man in space story or a last man on earth story, everyone who's written in that genre, everyone who's written those riffs is thinking, well, my God, that was my story and how dare he? Now, I don't think that was really what Rod was doing because whenever he did come across a story that he liked, such as uh, Time Enough at Last or by Lynn Venable or To Serve Man by Damon Knight or It's a Good Life by Jerome Bixby, if he's aware of the, of the source, he would buy the story. And, and even with George Clayton Johnson, the first couple of, of stories he bought from George and then finally George got to do scripts. So, so this was, I think, the nature of the beast, the nature of the genre. But it certainly started getting 
a vibe going, a vibe of resentment that I think was kind of tainting the stew a bit, shall we say. Uh, but meanwhile, Matheson and Beaumont were writing script after script after script. George uh, Clayton Johnson came aboard, then Earl Hamner. You know, the, this Twilight Zone was a huge hit. And I think it was actually serving the genre very well because I think a lot of people were uh, intrigued by these writers and then going to these books and starting to read these stories. I think it really helped to popularize science fiction greatly. But so, okay, so let's continue with Rod Serling and Ray Bradbury. And uh, so, okay. So, uh, Here There Be Tigers did not get made. I talked to Buck Houghton about that. It was about a planet where all that the, the turns out to be alive and is trying to drive the astronauts away who land on it. And Buck told me it just was, from a production, production standpoint, couldn't, couldn't be made. And so that one never got made. Finally, uh, Ray writes, I Sing the Body Electric. And he says to Serling, um, I'll write this, but you must not touch a word of it. You must film it exactly as I wrote it. So, uh, so Rod says, fine. So that was, of course, back when you didn't have VCRs, you couldn't record a show. And so the show's going to air, and Ray has a big party with all his friends, because he loved television, he loved movies, he loved radio, loved comics. All, his stories were adapted in all these different media wonderfully well. And, uh, and he was thrilled, he was excited. And of course, he'd been seeing all of his protégés writing for Twilight Zone, so I'm sure that that was all a part of it as well. Twilight Zone was very much a, a subject of conversation. So... Um, so he's there at the party with all of his friends, and unbeknownst to him, uh, they, the, the episode had run over, over Lee Long over time, and they'd had to cut it, uh, and what they'd cut un, unwittingly and unfortunately was the one page that was Ray's reason for writing the story. And so he sits down to watch it with his friends, and that page is missing. You know, and a page is only about a minute of, of screen time, so it wasn't a huge excision. But they, and they, but they hadn't informed him. And again, when you're in the hurly-burly of, of shows and shooting, I mean, you try to be... I, I mean, you know, I, I, I researched Serling for years writing the book, and I, I listened to audio of him and video of him uh, t talking candidly to classes. And I, I know very much what kind of guy he was. He was an ethical, good-hearted man, and, and he would, I'm sure, be aghast at the notion that he was harming anyone or even hurting anyone's feeling uh, who he regarded well. So, so this was... Definitely, um, you know, not deliberate. But when, again, when you're in the hurly-burly of writing, and Rod was writing script after script after script, he wrote 92 of 156 Twilight Zone episodes himself, and also at the same time was writing movies like Seven Days in May, also writing the Twilight Zone books, and teaching in the summers. So this was a guy who was just driven, driven, driven. But anyway, so the episode airs, and Ray's there with his friends watching it, and he is appalled. He is apoplectic that his work has been cut. And he said, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. So um, Miracle of Rare Device, which is a wonderful script, was never made. And, uh, <clears throat> and that was, you know, that was just the way it went. And, um, and it was a shame. It was a shame because these two men, you know, had they had a fruitful working relationship, there's so many Ray Bradbury stories that would have been terrific Twilight Zone episodes, Ela uh, from the Martian Chronicles, many of the Martian Chronicles stories, on and on. You can just name dozens of Ray Bradbury stories that would have been terrific. And, and you know, Ray didn't speak publicly about this and because he was a, a gentleman and a, and, a, and a good man. And uh, and I'm only, and I'm presenting this, I think, and I'm trying to present it in a very balanced way because I don't think either of these men is the villain <coughs> here at all. <clears throat> they were both doing brilliant work. We're, we're enormously better for, for them having existed and, and followed their creative paths. But it's just a shame that the, the, the working relationship wasn't what Rod had with Beaumont and Matheson and George Clayton Johnson. In fact, when he won the, the Emmy for the second season of Twilight Zone, he held up the Emmy on camera, live, and named George Clayton Johnson, Richard Matheson, 
and uh, Charles Beaumont and said, come over to my house, guys, and we'll carve this up like a turkey. And every week in the coming attraction spot, Serling would go out of his way to name the writer. And, and when George Clayton Johnson visited the set on uh, uh, Nothing in the Dark, Serling came up with some, some guests uh, to the set and said, this is George Clayton Johnson, and he wrote this terrific episode that we're shooting now. So Ray was very generous and very gracious. And, and of course, Ray Bradbury's contribution, Twilight Zone, George Clayton Johnson and Charles Beaumont and Richard Matheson were his three protégés. And if not for Ray Bradbury, they wouldn't have existed as writers, I don't think. And so and certainly not the kind of writers they became. So Twilight Zone would not have existed in, in the form it existed if not for Ray Bradbury. So it's just a shame that this, that this happened the way it did. But, but, uh, but, and, and Rod was a gentleman, and he didn't talk about this publicly either. The only thing he ever said about Ray Bradbury in an interview was, he said, um, Ray Bradbury's a brilliant writer on the page, but often his writing doesn't translate to... Um, to, the, to, to film. It's, it's what sounds good on the page as dialogue is flowery, doesn't quite work in the mouth. And, and that is true. And, and certainly Ray Bradbury's great strength was not in television. He wrote some very good episodes of uh, Hitchcock Presents, but if you look at Ray Bradbury Theater, it's, a, it's an entertaining show, but certainly not up there with Twilight Zone, certainly not at that level. So, so that was the, the, the journey. That was the, um, the experience of these two men. And, uh, and I'm writing a book now with my, about my friendship with Ray, and I'll be including some of this in there, as well as many, many other stories. And I'll be doing several other videos about my, my relationship, my friendship with Ray, and uh, things he told me that he didn't um, tell the public at large. But, uh, but always I'll be telling these stories with a mind toward how much I, I care deeply about the people I'm talking about. And uh, <clears throat> because this is, this, I'm not trying to do TMZ here, I'm not trying to uh, besmirch any of these people, because I think in creative uh, relationships... You know, everyone is trying their best. Everyone is trying to create something amazing, wonderful. And we're so lucky when that happens, when, when lightning strikes. And, uh, and so we all work with the best intentions. And, uh, and it doesn't always uh, emerge where, uh, where we can always be friends. And it's a shame. Though there is one story, that the, one final Twilight Zone story that, that Ray told me that I thought was wonderful and great. And this is a story that Ray told on himself. Uh, at some point, <clears throat> Ray was uh, invited to a banquet. And Ray didn't drive, and so he asked Buck Houghton to drive him. Buck was, of course, the great producer of the first three seasons of Twilight Zone, an amazing man, a wonderful man. I'm so glad that I got to know Buck well. And, uh, and so he asked, he asked Buck to drive him to the event, because Buck was attending this, this, this uh, banquet as well. So, so they're sitting at the banquet at, at, around the table, and at some point, Buck Houghton just says offhandedly, well, you know, everyone sells out. There comes a point in everyone's life where they have to sell out one way or another. And Ray says, I never sold out. I take, uh, I take exception to that. I never sold out in my life. And then he said, leave the table. <laughs> he said, leave the table. And he meant it. And Buck Houghton you know, had to leave the table and sit at another table. And then at the end of the evening, he had to drive Ray home. <laughs> and Ray said about this, he said, the, the audacity of me to say that, leave the table. I mean, how could I have been such a, such, so, so full of myself? So Ray was, Ray was laughing at himself and telling the story on himself. So, uh, so that's, that's the story of Rod Sterling and Ray Bradbury and me, I guess. I'm the, I'm the triumvirate of this, uh, of this story, the, the third leg of the stool. But, um, but anyway, so that's, I just want to share that with you because it was a part of, I think, uh, science fiction history and, and media history that has never been written, never been told. And, uh, and it's really fascinating. And uh, so that's it for now. If you want to talk about Rod Serling, Ray Bradbury, The Twilight Zone, anything, please comment, uh, like, share, do all the things you do. 
I'm uh, going to be talking much more about Ray Bradbury in a few more videos, about when we worked on the sequel to The Martian Chronicles, uh, both as a book and, and as a miniseries uh, that did not get made, but maybe someday will. And, uh, and also I'll talk about how Ray came to write Fahrenheit 451, all these wonderful stories he told me that uh, will be in the book that I'm writing. I'm writing a book called uh, My Ray Bradbury, and, uh, and I'm very glad that I, uh, I'll be able to put all this stuff down and, and save it and share it with all of you. So until next time, it's Mark Zikri, Mr. Sci-Fi, Mark Zikri of Space Command, and, uh, and we'll see you again really soon. Bye-bye. There you go. I'll put a link on to Mr. Sci-Fi Man as well, Mark Zikri, so you can go over there and check out his YouTube channel. And David mentioned as well, David's done something. David Reagan, who does our kind of film, film music talks and things. David's you know, in production with Dancer's Journey, now, I'll put a link on the Dancer's Journey as well because it's coming on. I think it's PB, is it PBS Sol Cal. It's a, a Dancer's Journey. It's about Mariah Slavenka, I think, I don't, maybe one of the most celebrated ballerinas of the 21st century. So David's kind of done the music for that as well. So there's a link onto that as well. And, you know, we've got to support our kind of, you know, friends that are kind of helping out the show. You know, these are their day jobs. So please pop over there and have a look at A Dancer's Journey by David as well. There's a link on, so have a look at that. So next up is The Drained World by Ian Watson. This is the final story today. Ian Watson is the author of over 40 novels and short story collections, mainly science fiction, but also horror, fantasy and the surreal. He has screen credit for the screen story of Steven Spielberg's AI artificial intelligence based on... A year's work with Stanley Kubrick, eyeball to eyeball. I've seen that. I'm sure there's a documentary out there. I'm sure I've seen it. His most recent publications are The Best of Ian Watson and Uncollected Ian Watson, both from PS Publishing, as well as his collected poems, Memory Man from Leaky Boot Press. These days, Ian lives in North Spain. Very nice as well, sir. The story is narrated by Tim Maroney. There you go. I haven't got any bio on Tim. Jeremy, you're slipping up there. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for this narration. Thank you so much indeed. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Drained World by Ian Watson. The Drained World by Ian Watson. Sun beat down on the private beach near Marbella, España. Today time seems to have stopped short, said the plutocrat Vasily Romanovich consulting his very waterproof Rolex. Yesterday, sea reached top of the little green rock, now only the bottom. A popular fallacy is that the Mediterranean has no tides, being the wrong size to resonate to the attractions of the moon and sun. On the other hand, what's wet and moves up and down a beach significantly twice a day, as opposed to so-called meteorological tides due to shifting distributions of atmospheric pressure, which have a period of several days, and of course the longer-term slosh of water from east to west and back again. Only the bottom, Vasily repeated, eyeing shapely Jacqueline Johnson, who fastened her bikini top and arose to peer. And maybe, she responded, blue eyes gleaming, this is only the beginning. Jacqueline's specialty was defying conventional thinking, so she endorsed the opinion of Spanish and Greeks and other circum-med nationalities that their shared sea has tides. What's wet regularly moves up and down a beach. You mean the beginning of global warming evaporation? asked one of Vasily's bodyguard colleagues, Andre, whose hairy gut hung out over his baggy trunks. This idiocy didn't really deserve an answer, but she replied calmly. 
of the emptying I predicted as a possibility. To be fair, Andre probably mentioned evaporation because more water evaporated from the Med every day than was replaced by all the rivers flowing into it, hence constant replacement from the Atlantic Ocean. Bending, Jacqueline fished in her Gucci bag for her multiphone and swiftly searched the web. Hmm, of course oceanic tide levels vary greatly from place to place, but in general it seems the Atlantic is half a meter lower than yesterday. This means... And she calculated before announcing a very large cubic kilometer of seawater has been lost. Vasily, we should return to the yacht. Before I cannot float? asked Andre. That will be quite a while yet, snapped Vasily, who understood science, hence his patronage of Jacqueline and her theory, which, if true, would require much readjustment worldwide as regards survival and opportunities. Where can so much seawater go to? persisted Andre. Around the bottom of South America? Into the Pacific? Would not the planet lean over? Into, said Vasily, governs measureless to man. Since his plutocrat father had sent him to an English public school to be polished, consequently he could quote Coleridge, porous regions deep beneath the ocean floor, which we may well call voids, and we shall now seriously begin to measure using submarines and body spheres and rock-penetrating radar. I shall establish the Romanovich Foundation to be headed by Jacqueline. We must try to discover how much ocean will disappear, how the map of the world will be redrawn. I shall need to liquidate assets. Andre, who had been in the FSB, probably mainly still thought of assets as informants and of liquidation as assassination, since his hand now formed a pistol shape, but Vasily shook his head. Our incomplete business with our contacts on this coast is at an end now. Forgive my referring to business matters he added to Jacqueline, since he wished to keep their scientific relationship unsullied. We shall set sail. We have other fish to fry. Jacqueline and her suspect alliance with the Russian plutocrat had been vindicated. Even as they cruised out through the Strait of Gibraltar, she was studying the latest news and getting ready to address the plenary session of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change by video link. Colder Atlantic surface water constantly flowed into the Med to replenish evaporation minus river input, and warmer medwater flowed out beneath the density boundary at 100 meters. Since the greatest depth of the Strait of Gibraltar was 900 meters, the diminished med would become landlocked in a mere five years. Yet according to Jackman's calculations, the rate of oceanic drainage might soon increase to a meter per day or more. Better to be safe by a long margin than marooned in the med. Even though Vasily and those closest to him could escape in his yacht's helicopter, his yacht being very large. As an analogy, Jacqueline was soon telling the video camera and the IPCC, imagine enormous two-way trapdoors of stone in the depths of the Atlantic and doubtless the Pacific too, as well as the Indian Ocean. The extra weight of seawater due to greenhouse melting has opened these gates. They reached the tipping point. Formerly, some maverick scientists thought there might be giant oceans beneath the sea floor, which the pressure of magma might push upward, drowning even Mount Everest. But no, currently there are enormous unsaturated porous regions, the question is, how enormous? Our bathosphere is stuck, Brave Jean-Luc radioed to the surface 18 months later. The downward suction is too great. Thank God you didn't come along this time, Jacqueline. At least we'll have time until our air runs out to determine the size of the void below us. Three hours later, Jacqueline finished calculating how much more of the Atlantic would fill the Jean-Luc void as the two-man bathosphere team breathed their last. This volume, plus those of the other voids already plumbed, indicated a future worldwide sea level one kilometer below the 2010 mean datum. 
Very acceptable, said Vasily. So we won't have a desert world with no rainfall, nor any drop to drink except for a few hundred thousand high-tech survivors pumping water from underground oceans for desalination to sustain them and their vegetables and chickens and pet cats. This calls for champagne. Andre, you must splice the main brace and cancel the arcs of water project. We shall drink to Jean-Luc and Marc Antoine, Vasily mused. Hmm, the med will be reduced to an Ionian lake. With no North Sea, Britain becomes part of Europe again. Scandinavia joins the Baltic states. There mightn't be much Caribbean apart from a Cayman Trench lake. I expect many geopolitical changes. Two years later, the mass migration from Africa into Europe began. Enough fish trapped in pools sustained the advancing masses until relatively clean nuclear weapons detonated along the bed of the Med as a warning. With apologies to Stephen Baxter's splendidly disconcerting flood. There you go. Don't forget. Copyright is Ian Watson's. Ian, thank you so much for this. And Tim, what can I say? A big thank you, sir. So that is Starship Sova's 300 and... It's been a busy one. 361 has been a busy day this today. I hope you enjoyed everything, like all the short stories, all the narrations, a little chat with Jeremy as well. And especially, you know, Mark Zickery telling the story of Rod Sterling, Ray Bradbury. That's just fantastic. So just before I go as well, remember last week now, last week, right at the end, I kind of mentioned, you know, this was after kind of the credits, a little, you know, I've got an idea for setting up some sort of workshop, little group who kind of, you know, suffers from anxiety and, you know, little kind of mental health issues. And I'm certainly not claiming that I'm kind of up there can kind of fix problems and that, but I've been, I've been to that hell, I've been to that dark fucking door. Do you know what I mean? I've opened it a few times and it's not a nice place to be in. So I've been there and I kind of come back out, you know what I mean? So I know where I'm kind of, where I'm going, what it's like, if what you're going through. If you kind of, you know, I've people's dropped us a line, you know, I will get, get in touch with everyone now. I'm just kind of keeping these all on fire there because like I say, I'm going to be possibly running like maybe a six weeks course with a drop in, you know, video chat center. It's, I'm working on something, you know, and be very nice to, if you if you're interested in that you know if you're kind of suffering from this thing it said on the new it was actually on the news today on the BBC news it says one in four people in the UK over the next year will suffer some sort of like little mental health issue be that depression anxiety you know it's not very nice at all like I say but if you know the the, the right kind of guidance, you know what I mean? Like, see, the last thing you want to do is start kind of popping pills and trying to, you know, and it's hard, you know, to, even for people to kind of, who aren't going through it, to kind of, to know what the partner's going through, do you know what I mean? And it's, it's only people, I think, you know, who've went through it, who know what years are like, you know, what we're going through, can kind of offer some sort of light and, you know, guide the way. Because if you haven't done it, you haven't been there, you haven't opened that fucking door, it, you know what I mean? You don't know about it. Yeah, you, you can read the books and everything, but once you've kind of, like you say, once you've turned that door and stepped through, that place beyond that door is not very nice. Do you know what I mean? And trying to get out of it. Do you know what I mean? It's just, and you cannot fight it. Do you know what I mean? That's the one thing. You try and fight to get back out. Oh, you cannot. But, you know, if, you, if you're interested in coming on and, you know, working and doing a kind of workshop group, something like that, or a little kind of drop in, you know, 
club. Drop us a line, starshipsover at gmail.com, because trust us, I know what it's like. And, you know, if, if it can help in any way, that would be good. You know, if we can all help as a little group, you know, people who are kind of feeling a little bit down, a little bit kind of stressed and anxiety, and I know exactly what it's like, you know, give us a shout, starshipsover at gmail.com. And for everyone who's kind of dropped us a line there, I will be in touch. Don't worry about that. I've got you all on file. We'll have a chat about things. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.